Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. The conversation this week is with Mark Manson, the author of number one New York Times bestselling book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Mark is about as interesting as that title may suggest, and he has a new book coming out. We talk at length about his own jumps, the 10,000 unsexy steps he's taken, and so much more. So without further ado, I'm going to take you there right now. Mark Manson, thank you so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start at the uh, at the very beginning and maybe rewind the clocks to Mark Manson, uh, the teenager going through childhood, going through high school, starting to think about his life. Did you have any idea it would end up at, at this point, at least the way it has? <laughs> Not a clue. Like no, no clue whatsoever. What did you think you were going to be doing when you were thinking about your job and work and how you're going to spend time? When I was in high school, first of all, it's a little bit ironic because I never made good grades in English. And I, I now I'm a New York Times bestselling author. So it's like <laughs> something something didn't quite connect. I don't know if that's a, a judgment on my English teachers. But uh, when I was in high school, I was your typical lazy stoner underachieving music bum you know i played i played guitar in a rock band um i wanted to go to music school really the only thing i i cared about was was just playing music and um i was smart but my my grades were mediocre and so i i didn't really have any like larger ambitions when did things start to change because that's obviously not how the story has ended up so far <laughs> So I did, I went to music school and I got my ass kicked, which is great. I mean, music's a funny thing because it's, it's like all the, the creative careers, which is it's like a winner take all winner takes all job market. Um, like the top 100 musicians in the country basically get all the work and everybody else is like <laughs> fighting, fighting for scraps. So if you're not in that top hundred, it's pretty rough and being at music school and the amount of rigor and study and practice and almost every single person in my classes was better than me. It was just very humbling. Uh, it, it was, it was a wake up call. And I, I realized that I, I, as much as I love music, I didn't love it enough to, you know, I, I could see where the road was going and it, it was, it was pretty much heading to like high school band teacher and, that wasn't very exciting. <laughs> so, um, the the thing with me, pro, pro musicians that that you really don't see is you you don't see the the hours of practice, and um, that that was the eye opening thing for me because in music school they were like, look, if you go into a studio session for a commercial or Taylor Swift or whoever, mm -hmm. th they're going to drop a piece of music in front of you and you have to play it perfectly the first time you see it, no matter what's on it. And to get to that level, just re it requires thousands of hours of practice and, and practicing music is pretty monotonous. Like it is, it's extremely repetitive. It's boring. There's nobody watching. And, uh, that's, that's the real, that's, that's what the job actually is. And so right. as soon as I discovered that I was like, wow, I, yeah, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> Did you have an idea of what you were cut out for? 
Uh, I really didn't. Um, so to kind of continue the story, I I, um, I moved I moved to Boston and uh, I studied international business. Which don't ask me why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds nice. Uh, it does sound nice. I mean, I, I took some finance classes. I was playing a lot of poker at the time. And so I was like, well, I'm good with like probabilities. And most people are terrible at probabilities. So, and, and being in the Northeast, like finance was always like finance was the thing. If you were a smart person who liked numbers and wanted to make money, like that's just kind of what you went and did. And so I got out of school and I actually got a job at an investment bank and, um, hmm. I hated it so much. I think I lasted two months. And the the reason I lasted two months was because, well, two reasons. One was uh, the financial collapse of 07 had just happened. Right. So there was like no, there was no prospects of raises and promote. There was no bonus money there. You know, it, it, there was no Wolf <laughs> of Wall Street that was about to happen. It was, it, it was right. doom and gloom for everybody. But the other reason was just, well, aside from hating it, was that, I had some friends who were running like an internet trying to start up some like website businesses. And I had, I had been helping them on the side to make a little bit of extra money. And they introduced me to Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, which was this amazing book back then that basically described how you could automate a business on the internet and then just go live wherever you wanted. You could go to Argentina, you could go to Thailand, you could do whatever. And to me that as like a, bored 23 year old um who didn't know what the hell he wanted to do that sounded perfect it sounded exact exactly like what i wanted to do <laughs> <laughs> totally it's so funny because uh i feel like in our era everyone has that moment because i had such similar feelings and sentiments and i it's like where were you when you found four hour work week? <laughs> yeah, you know? right. it's like it's like what life were you living that you didn't really like when you like were impacted by it and i I think that that's funny. It, it's certainly quite prescriptive in how you can, you know, take the blueprint, but it feels like, as you said, the message at a high level sounded like it resonated. Oh, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't stand the bank. And so my brief stint with the corporate world, it was so obvious. <laughs> like, I remember actually, I remember going in, I remember going in on the first day and my supervisor was training me at like the computer console and I remember looking at my watch and being like, how long do I have to stay before I can quit? And then I realized I've only been here for two hours. <laughs> it's like, that's a really bad sign. <laughs> yeah, that's usually not the uh, the sign of a upper management candidate written all over him. <laughs> no, not at all. That's funny. That's a that's a good point, though. I think that people overlook that often in both ways. They They often feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I'll make this work in a job with a bunch of structure, even though in their in their heart of hearts they need something different. Or people who are perhaps unhappy in a specific job taking uh, a very broad conclusion out of it, saying I would rather just you know live in Bali or or you know uh, work for myself as a blogger. And it's definitely not for everyone, and it's not exactly like there's going to be you know some silver bullet out there that just solves your problems um, if you don't truly know yourself first, right? Yeah, I, and I think what what you mentioned is is a really good point in that I think our our minds tend to overcompensate. So if we're really unhappy in a situation, we we imagine that every single variable needs to change. 
when it, it really could just be as simple as like, well, you need to be moved to another department or, you know, maybe take on some other responsibilities or maybe your boss sucks. You know, like it, it's a lot of times the solution is um, like our emotions drive us to want to just throw everything out and start over. But, you know, often it's, it's a little change makes a big difference. Um, so, I mean, I, I quit, I quit and started a web business and I think I look, I get asked all the time how I had the courage to do that. Cause a lot of people struggle with that decision. And for me, it was two things. I think one was very intelligent and one and mature and one was very stupid and immature. Um, <laughs> right. so the intelligent mature one was, I remember sitting there and I had a decent amount of savings. Um, I had gotten like some graduation gifts. I'd saved money in college. Uh, like I had a part-time job and I actually had a bunch of poker winnings. And so I was like, all right, I have enough to live off of for like a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, so I got that going for me. And I, and I, I looked at like, okay, what is worst case scenario? Like, let's say I take a year, a year and a half, I try to start a web business and I fail miserably and I come back with my tail between my legs and ask for a, you know, my job back or ask for another job or something like, and I realized, you know, what is the difference between an unemployed 23 year old with no experience and an unemployed 25 year old with no experience? Like there's basically nothing like you're, you're, you're the bottom of the totem pole regardless. Like really all you're giving up is a year and some of your savings. And so I realized like, you know, if there's any time in my life to take a risk like this, I don't have any debt. I don't, I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. You know, this is probably, and I'm young. So any, any risk I take at 23, the, the, the dividends that it's going to pay over the coming decades. I mean, essentially I was at the point, the one point in my life where the, the benefits of, of taking this risk were the highest and the, 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 uh, the losses were the lowest. So I think that was a very mature and smart way to look at it. Um, the immature and stupid way to look at it, <laughs> which I have to admit helped me do it was, um, I was just, I was very cocky back then. You know, I was a pretty arrogant guy. Like I, I, I always think I'm like smarter than everybody else. And so I was like, I remember watching my friends kind of struggle to build their business and they were making a little bit of money here and there. And I remember looking at them like, well, well shit, I'm smarter than them (laughs) and they're making some money. I bet I could make twice that money in like in a few months, you know, which was just like a very immature and egotistical thing to do. But it, it helped, it gave me the confidence to pull the trigger and, and go for it. I think if I had known how hard, how much work it would, it would be, I don't know if I would have been able to do it. So there was uh, the ignorance helped me a little bit. I think sometimes you definitely are aided by what you don't know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a little bit, there's a little bit to be said about like blind overconfidence. It's, you know, you don't have to be an asshole about it, but it's, I would rather be overconfident than underconfident. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Then let me pose it from the opposite direction, if you're not young in your twenties, maybe some dependence on your, on your, um, 
you know, on your financial tab to pick up for, you've got a house and a mortgage. What do you, what do you do? Do you not jump if you're those people? I think, I think the equation changes. You know, I think when you're young, your biggest asset is your time and you don't, you don't have much to lose. So, you know, you don't have any money, but you also don't have much to lose. Uh, I think when you're in your thirties or forties or older, you know, your time, you have a lot more to lose, but you also have a lot more. So you have assets, you have savings, you know, or ideally you should, ideally you, you have some savings to fall back on. Um, you have, I mean, you, you have obligations like a mortgage or whatever, but like you can, you can work within your situation to kind of find a way to give you that space to see if, see if it, it can go anywhere. Yeah. You know, for, for for me, it's like I, I I sat down and I was like, "How can I give myself a year to see if this goes anywhere?" And I and I think if you're 40, even with kids and all the other stuff, like you can find that you can find, okay, give me a year, and let's see how far I can get with with this thing. I totally agree. I think that we oftentimes think in zero or one outcomes. I'm biased because I feel like that's been like the last five years for me is pushing that message of like, you know, jumps come in shapes and sizes that are different depending on the person and they aren't made overnight, but it it seems like it's not a zero or one, uh, you know, at all. Absolutely. I mean, a 40 year old may have constraints that a 20 year old doesn't, but he also, I mean, he has a reputation, he has experience, there's credibility. You know, one of my problems starting out was I was literally a 23 year old who had not done anything in his life, (laughs) you know? So it's, it's hard to get your foot in some doors (laughs) when that's the case, you know? Whereas if you're, say you're in your forties and you've had a really successful legal career or something like that, that's, that's something you can kind of wave around and get people to stop and listen to you depending on the situation. So yeah, it, I think you, you put it very well, it, it, it comes in many different shapes and sizes. Oh, I appreciate it. And I want to go back to, to your story because it's, it's one I've, I've long admired. I know a lot of folks have followed your own story. Uh, and if, if they haven't, they will after this, this conversation. But you didn't stay in just kind of the, the website kind of bootstrapped uh, automated business game, you know, forever, right? That's not how the story yeah. ended either. So can, no. you, can you share what happens next? <laughs> So I quit my job. I start up some websites. And I mean, look, I, I love Tim Ferriss's book, but the whole four hour thing, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, I had a friend who used, I, I had a friend who used to joke. Um, he used to say like, yeah, we, we work 16 hours a day so that we can make money while we sleep. Um, <laughs> you know, like that, that's basically what that lifestyle looks like is that you are just constantly hustling, building websites, finding niches, you know, creating SEO articles. You know, I, I was doing, for, for people who know anything about internet marketing, I was doing like a lot of affiliate stuff. So I'd build like a website or a blog, I'd fill it up with a bunch of cheap and crappy content, and then I would try to like sell stuff. And the idea was if you can build, you know, let's say eat. A, an average site makes you a couple hundred bucks a month. You know, if you can build 10, 10 of those websites, you've got enough to at least like live and pay rent. And then 
if you go live somewhere like Argentina, then then you can actually live quite well off of, you know, like two grand a month. This is back in 2009, 2010. So you could live pretty well in Argentina off like two grand a month. So that that was the idea. And that's what I did at first. And it was just a straight hustle. I mean, it was just constant grinding, constant working, teaching yourself everything. Um, what happened was about a year into it or so, there was one site that I had that I was promoting dating advice. And it was, you know, being a young, single, 24-year-old dude, it was, the, it was the site that I was personally most interested in. So that site got a little bit more love and attention from me um, because I could talk about the dating situations I was going through and stuff that I was learning from the books I was reading and, and things like that. And within a couple of years, that website was making as much money as all the other ones combined. And, uh, so I, I really started just primarily focusing on that site. And then it was funny because I, I started doing, I guess kind of the next step in that world so initially I was selling other people's stuff. So it's like, let's say you, you know, you had an ebook that you were selling for 10 bucks and I promoted on my website. The way it would work is for every sale I gave to you uh, or every book I sold, you and I would split it $5, $5. Sure. So, so every, every dollar I was making through my website, I was having the split with people who actually owned the intellectual property. And so the next step was like, all right, it's time for me to create my own intellectual property. And so I created some courses and some eBooks and things like that. And I would try to do these big, like cheesy internet marketing launches that all the seminars and stuff taught you to do. And it was funny because every launch I tried to do would just like bomb. Like nobody would buy my stuff, but I had thousands of people reading, like coming to my site every day. And I was like, wow, this doesn't make any sense. Like I have so much traffic but people don't want to buy my, you know, three secrets to get her to say yes every time, you know, whatever, like some cheesy gimmicky bullshitty thing that I was trying to sell. And finally, I think I sat down with some friends and some other people who, you know, some other entrepreneurs and business owners. And I was just kind of talking through things. And I came to like a very startling conclusion, which was that I was a very good blogger uh, and writer and I was a very mediocre marketer and salesman. And, you know, people started pointing out, they're like, you know, the thing that people love on your site is your, like, your 10-page post about that crazy weekend you had last spring. No, people were treating me as an author. They weren't treating me as a, a store. And that was a huge aha moment. Because one thing I had, I had kind of realized, too, around that same time was that the, the blogging and the writing was my favorite part of the business. Like I used to tell people, I'm like, man, if I could just write articles all day, like that would be fucking great. But no, I got to put together this launch and all this marketing and right. advertising and, of course. and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And of course, and, and I'm like, you know, none of that stuff worked. And it was the thing that I actually enjoyed doing the most. And, and the other thing that happened too, which was really eye opening, this kind of comes back to realizing like what the job actually is, was like, I didn't even realize it, but I was writing so much more stuff than most people. Like I used to go to these conferences and stuff and, and people would come up to me and be like, man, your blog articles are like 
3,000 words long and you post like multiple times a week, are you're like copy and pasting old articles, right? <laughs> and I'm like, no. They're like, how do you write that much? Uh, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Which, by the way, is like never, never a comment you want to hear. It's like, you must be reposting it, yeah, right? right? Like, no, actually, no. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, it's just fun. It's just fun for me. You know, people would say like, how long did it take you to write that piece? Thinking that it took weeks. And I was like, I don't know, like an afternoon. And so I didn't even realize it, but like I had a real competitive advantage that I wasn't aware of. And it's funny because this is actually a story I, I tell when I, I give talks sometimes, which is when I was back when I was in music school, there was a guy in my music, in my music program who like, it was just clear he was going to make it. Like he, he had it. And I remember when I was getting really frustrated, I sat down with him and I was like, man, how do you practice so much? Like what... What, what's your routine like? Like, how do you set up your practice sessions so that you don't get burnt out? And I remember he just looked at me like I was speaking Swahili. He was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's like, I just play, you know, like it's just, it just felt natural to him. And, th- and that conversation with him was one of the, the big realizations I had about like, oh, the, you know, I'm not cut out for this. And it was funny because if you jump ahead like eight years later, people were coming up to me about blogging and having pretty much the exact same conversation. It's just, I was on the other end, you know, they're like, well, what's your writing process like and how much time you set aside? And I was like, I don't know, dude, I just like wake up and have an idea and I write it out. And so I realized that, that, that the thing that most people found very difficult and daunting was, was for whatever reason, it just, it was fun for me. And that's when I, I, that's when I made the decision of like, I'm going to be, you know, fuck the marketing stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to make a go at being like a full-time writer. Yeah. And I think that that's like where we tell people to start when it's like, Oh, I don't know what I'd want to do. It's like, well, what do you do when you're supposed to be doing other stuff? Like when you're supposed to be crunching numbers at the banking job, um, or if you're supposed to be writing and you're crunching numbers, then maybe that's the job for you is the banking job. So it's like what, you know, what pot fits or what top fits the kettle or whatnot and, and get and pulling the thread on it. Because like you said, there's so much noise and I think sometimes what gets lost in this obsession of being the you know your own boss and traveling around the world and living life on your terms is you end up perhaps unhappier because you're doing all these things that that don't actually work and if you look at like what I feel like what Tim was saying in the book originally which maybe got lost in the noise is like he was firing customers he was changing his model around things that worked for him and your story doesn't seem to be very different it's just a different kind of lens in which you replaced pieces of your kind of day to day, but it was very, it seems very thoughtful and very intentional around saying like, what am I going to do that makes, that makes me happy, which is correlated highly to what I'm good at. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those things are correlated a lot. Like you have to, you have to start, like you said, just like what feels easy, what feels enjoyable because then, then from there, like that, that is what you will end up getting good at. Just, because you enjoy doing it anyway. So, um, and it, and it's funny too, like to your point, I didn't realize this until after I started taking writing seriously, but I, I realized that I had, I had always been like that. I think I assumed I was a bad writer because I got bad grades in school. But when I honestly look back, the reason I got bad grades in school is I never followed the damn assignment. Um, it wasn't cause the writing was bad. <laughs> so 
it was always there. It's just, I had no idea. Like it, it wasn't until it became part of my business that I realized like, oh shit, I actually, I have a talent for this. Totally. It is so funny because a lot of those people ended up making, you know, we, we had the, um, the points guy, Brian Kelly on, on the show before. And also it was featured in the book, but he described that. And he was the guy in the message boards talking about, you know, credit card rewards, you know, to no end. And so you just kind of, if you've got those little wedges of interest, just see where they go, because that's, that's usually the, the grand kind of book deals and, and, you know, podcast shows or, or book tours, whatever it is, like those come from, from actually a pretty natural interest somewhere, you know, way earlier. Yeah, I mean, the way I frame it to my readers often is is like what is like what is the shit sandwich that you enjoy that most other people don't? Because that that is aside from, you know, just being a good indicator of like what you're going to enjoy doing with your life, um it's also your competitive advantage. Like if there's something that 99% of people can't stand, like I the idea of like thinking about credit card rewards and interest rates and stuff, like it, it sounds awful like i think i'd rather go to the dentist but like that guy he loves it so and he loves something that most people don't and so that's a huge competitive advantage for him and that sets him up very well to you know create a career out of it for sure so i want to i want to fast forward here to when you end up getting into more writing, writing, and then, n- not out of nowhere, but uh, to, this, to the pleasant surprise of many readers who are trying uh, to, to give less fucks, you come out with a book. Tell us about that. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, this was like 2011, I think. I decided to make the full-time switch to blogging. Went out, bought all the books about writing and everything started taking it very seriously. And, uh, by 2000, I think three years later, 2014, my site traffic had grown to be one, two, one to 2 million people per month. So it's within three years, it was like one of the largest blogs on the internet. And then from there, it, it, I got my first book deal, which would later become the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And it, and it's so funny because in the in the publishing in the world of publishing, I'm I'm a debut author. Like subtle art is my debut book, um, and it's gone on to sell, I think six million copies is last I heard, um, which is just like an astronomical <laughs> amount of books. That's unbelievable. But it's, but it's funny because like I'll go into these meetings and I'll you know I'll hear from people at, at the publisher and it's like oh yeah well as a debut author like this must be very exciting and, and and it's just in my head I'm like guys I've been doing this for eleven years like <laughs> I've been writing every single week for eleven years right uh, they they don't understand like the the years and years of of honing your craft and and thought and effort that goes into it leading up to that big breakthrough moment. And if, for those who don't know, what's the, the, the you know, the, the, maybe the elevator pitch on, on subtle art and, and what was, I'd love to hear. I mean, I, I think I messaged you a picture of walking down a street in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia and um, a knockoff of your book. Maybe it was the real thing, but probably not. It was being sold on a street corner. Like, that's how, you know, ingrained and integrated with like pop culture this has become. What's, what's it been like and, you know, how did it lead to what you're doing now and what, what the next book's about to come out with? Uh, 
the so the the success of subtle art was just mind-blowing and it really messed with my head <laughs> a little bit it messed with my head because it's in my mind you know when i switched to writing full-time i i had a number of goals and dreams in my head you know i wanted to have my own book i wanted to be a bestseller i wanted to sell a bunch of copies i wanted to do this and that and the other thing and in my mind i was going to be working towards those goals for like 20 30 years and subtle art knocked them all out in like three months it just became this insane success (laughs) and it actually it started messing with me because it it every single month it got to the point where it was like i wasn't even doing anything which is incredible like don't don't get me wrong but it 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 since this podcast is about purpose, you know, that actually creates a very, it creates like a crisis of purpose. It's like, well, shit, I don't have to do anything ever again if I don't want to. <laughs> it's like, how am I going to follow this thing up? Like why write it? Anything I write now is going to be like disappointing in comparison. So like why write anything else? So it, it actually, it, it messed with me for a while, but a lot of that. So my next book that comes out next month is called, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. And it's very much kind of addresses a lot of those questions about purpose and about, you know, how how actually the better our life gets in many ways, it makes it more difficult to find a sense of hope or purpose for ourselves. And I and I kind of opine a little bit or philosophize a little bit about maybe that's uh explains a little bit of what's going on in our culture today with all the political polarization and people are just freaking out 24 seven over everything. So as usual, you know, I've always said that my writing is like my own form of therapy. It's just like a very public form of therapy. Um, in that sense, this next book is, is kind of my own little piece of therapy of, of kind of adjusting to what success that I never imagined would happen feels like. And, um, kind of, reorienting myself to find something find new goals and new dreams and and a new purpose for myself so yeah check it out (laughs) and that comes out um very very soon what is the exact launch day where can folks find it uh where you're going to be going on tour all that good stuff sure uh may 14th it'll be available in every english-speaking country as well as a few foreign countries i will be doing a speaking tour through the u.s in may and june and then uh it looks like i'll be going overseas in july to uh at least australia and uk um hopefully a couple more cities so stay tuned to that you can go to markmanson.net to see my blog markmanson.net slash book dash tour to see my my tour dates and um and the book is it's gonna be everywhere trust me (laughs) (laughs) what i mean just to wrap up here, uh, and I, I highly encourage folks, if you haven't yet, to, to read the first one and to get ready for the second, because I do feel like there's there's just a lot there that resonates with this community for sure. And and I, I guess my question to you, you know, you had you had mentioned early on in, um, in Subtle Art this kind of clear reality that kind of cuts through a few things to folks in, in kind of no uncertain terms, one of which being that, you know, at some point we all die and everyone else around you and that you know will die. You know, one of the questions I asked myself a lot before I took one of you know my smaller jumps was, you know, what are you most proud of when you're 80 years old and you have that moment of reflection? 
as someone who thinks, I imagine, as you said, you know, in these kind of therapeutic lenses as you write and, and reflects very candidly on life, do you have an answer for that question? How do you see your own journey playing out from here? Well, I, I think, so I, I experienced a lot of writer's block when I first start, started trying to write my next book. And looking back, I think there was a lot of external pressure uh, from the publisher, from my agent, from my my fans. I think anybody who kind of has a success, like a massive, massive success in that sense, like there's so much pressure on whatever comes next. And that pressure was very much freaking me out. It It, it was difficult to either let go of or, or try to live up to. Like I felt very stuck. And I think it, it took some time, but eventually I came around to the fact of like, look, at the end of the day, forget sales, forget fans, forget publishing deals. Like you need to write a book that you think is better than subtle art. That needs to be the starting point. You know, once you've done that, then you can worry about selling the damn thing or marketing it or making a bunch of money or whatever. But like write a better book that way, no matter what happens, whether it's super successful or it it bombs, at least you can be proud of it. And that was essentially just what I held on to the whole time I was writing it is just, is this a better book? Is it more thoughtful? Is it is it more mature, you know? And, and I feel like it is. And it, and it's funny now because I'm doing all this promotion and stuff leading up to it. And so many people are like, Oh man, are you nervous? Are you nervous? Oh man, there must be, must be a lot of pressure on you. And it, and it's funny. Cause I was, when I started writing, I was terrified and like, now I'm not nervous at all. You know, it honestly, the book could bomb and I, and I'd be like, well, all right, I'm still proud of it, but didn't work out. And so it's it's actually that that is what ultimately pulled me through, and I I hope to hold on to that throughout my career. It's just make every book a little bit better, so that yeah, when I am eighty, uh, I won't have any regrets. Mark Manson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us to share your jump, your journey, your first book, your upcoming next book. Everyone should go check out markmanson.net, which, by the way, you know you're an OG on the blog if you've got a .net hanging around. (laughs) Congrats on that. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me, Mark, and best of luck on your upcoming book tour. Awesome, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it for the show today. I hope you enjoyed hearing Mark's story. Quite an amazing uh, way to tell it and an incredible impact he's made uh, and and in just such a down-to-earth way. So, Before you go, I wanted to give all the When to Jump listeners a quick update on things. After doing over 80 episodes, 8-0 episodes of this show, we'll be taking a hiatus in a few weeks. Our last episode will be on May 7th, And it's a bit of a bittersweet uh, feeling, to be honest, to be pausing the show. But I would reinforce the word pausing, not canceling, not stopping forever, pausing. That's my plan, pausing the show. But I recently took my own jump 
and started taking classes at Stanford Business School. I'm also teaching a little bit or guest lecturing, I should say, and have my hands in a lot of different pies. And so I think I just need some time to focus on that. But don't worry, because while the podcast is pausing, our online community will still be around and isn't going anywhere. So that's even more reason to stay in touch with us at whentojump.com or follow us on social at whentojump. You can also sign up for our newsletter and we'll send you updates on all the stuff our jumpers are doing. We hear from people all the time and I want that to keep coming, even though we'll be putting on a little bit of a pause break, the podcast. So please sign up for the newsletter so you can stay in touch for when we resume it and stay in touch with all things When to Jump related. But for now, my name is Mike Lewis and this is When to Jump. I'll see you next week.